Would you stand with me this morning and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, if you would please, Acts chapter 1. While you're turning there, um, just a couple of things real quickly. First of all, do let the Welcome Center know if you did not get an appointment, we will, as Paula said, do our best to get uh, some more appointments, if at all possible. also wanted to um, mention uh, we have, uh, we are so excited about Joey and Hannah moving into the role of directing the Chi Alpha, and we have, as a church, committed the support that we've been giving to Josh and Allie. Uh, we have committed that same support uh, for Joey and Hannah. Uh, many of you have supported uh, the Bowmans personally, and uh, if you are one of those folks, we, you will get a letter this week and kind of explain what we've talked about today and Hopefully, you'll be able to continue that support for um, for Joey and Hannah as well. But we'll give you the details and let you know how to respond so that we can uh, help you if that's, that is what indeed you want to do. Uh, Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to, actually, if you'll move to the second screen, I'm only going to read just a few verses this morning, beginning in verse number 5 or verse number 4. Um, let me just kind of set the stage for this text. This is Acts chapter 1. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the tomb. He has uh, fellowshiped with and engaged the disciples for some 40 days now. And they are on the mountain. This is just prior to his ascension. He will, after this text, he will ascend into the heavens. And we read in verse 4, being assembled together with them. He, that is Jesus, commanded them, the disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but instead to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, Jesus said, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they asked Jesus... Say, Lord, and I want you to notice this question. This is the key. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? To which Jesus responded, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Holy Spirit, speak to us in these moments that remain together today. I ask God that you would help me to speak with clarity, with simplicity, with boldness, integrity, and authority and power. I ask God that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room. And Lord, that our hearts will be broken humbled, that our vision would be expanded, we would see the call of the church like we have never seen it before. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break through every principality and power that might try to cause us to miss this truth today or to rebel or resist against it. And Holy Spirit, soften our hearts that we might receive the truth of your word. Let your anointing rest upon my life, not because I deserve it or have earned it, but because, Lord, I want to rightly divide your word. Speak to our hearts and challenge and change us in these moments together, I pray. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this message is not, um, it, it's not an easy one to preach, and uh, my guess is it is not all that easy to hear as well, because it, it challenges our way of thinking, and challenges the way that we are almost trained uh, in our culture to think. So the disciples are gathered on the mountain with Jesus. He is about to leave them. They spent three years with him. They watched him die. They now know that he has been raised. He is now preparing to leave. And he says to them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power. That's the promise that the Holy Spirit was to come. So they were pretty excited. They were pretty amped up. And they said to him, so is this the moment that we've all been waiting for? Is this the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel. John Calvin, as you remember, I said a couple of weeks ago, said of this question, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. In other words, the disciples missed it all together. They had everything wrong. They thought this was the moment. Is this the moment you're going to give the kingdom to Israel? Jesus redirects them. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has in his authority. Here's what I will tell you, Jesus said. You're going to receive power, authority, after the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you're going to be witnesses not only here in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the first thing that Jesus said and corrected, and we dealt with this a couple of weeks ago, was their thought that it was going to happen now. Is this the time? Is it going to happen right now? But Jesus explained to them, it's not just an event, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow afternoon, but it's a process of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Dick Brogdon shared with us last week. It is a, it is a call in which we must not fail, and that was the message that I shared with you two Sundays ago. We will fail if we think there's no battle to it, if we think it's easy, we're not going to have any pushback from the enemy, we will fail. We will fail if we're not willing to sacrifice. If we're not willing to give of ourselves, maybe even our own lives, we will fail at getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. And thirdly, we will fail unless we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we try to do it in our own strength, we will fall short. But there was a second error, and this is the one I want to talk about today, that the disciples in their question, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Notice what they said. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the second error of the disciples was they thought that this was an Israel thing. They thought this was a Jewish thing. This was something that the Messiah was going to do for the Jews, period. Is this the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so Jesus is going to correct their thinking and say to them, this is not just for Israel. This is a message that must be carried to the ends of the earth. It is, if you will... It is a mission without borders. It doesn't stop at the end of the Jewish nation. It doesn't stop at the coast of America. It is a mission to which we have been called that is without borders. You will be witnesses, Jesus said, here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel would indeed bring restoration to Israel, but it would go so much further than that. It was a gospel, it was a message that would reach the entire world. 
The mission of the Apostle Paul is summed up in these words in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek or to the Gentile. If you know anything about the book of Acts or you've read the book of Acts, you will notice that when Paul begins to minister in every city, he goes first into the Jewish synagogue. And he usually taught them for a week or two and then they would get tired of him because he would start pushing the envelope about Jesus as the Messiah and they would say enough is enough and they would drive him out of the synagogue and then he would go and start preaching to the Gentiles. Paul understood that his mission was to first carry the gospel to the Jews, but once rejected by them, them, he would then carry it to the Gentiles as well. So I want you to look right here for just a moment. I want you to think along these lines. I want to talk about a mission this morning that the church has, and it is a mission that has no borders. It has no parameters. It has no stopping point. And I want to share three thoughts with you about that, each of them just very briefly. Number one, in order for the church to embrace its mission without borders, it will require, first of all, a level of discomfort. I'm going to ask you all to be very honest with me for just a moment. If you had your preference, if you were told today and God said to you, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either be comfortable or uncomfortable for the rest of your life. How many would choose comfortable if you're really honest? All right. So all of us, if that was the choice we were given, we would choose comfort. But I want to suggest to you, in order for us to embrace and accomplish and carry out effectively our mission without borders, it is going to require a level of discomfort. So where did the whole mission of the church and the carrying of the gospel begin? It began in Jerusalem. It began in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. You know the story. They were all there in the upper room. Jesus had ascended. They were now in that period of time where they were waiting. They were waiting for the promise of the Father. And on the 10th day after Jesus ascended, or the 50th day after the resurrection, hence Pente, Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came. And it filled all of them that were in the room, and the Holy Spirit moved in them, and they all began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And the church was birthed on that day in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and preached this incredible sermon. You can imagine the stir that took place, the ruckus, when all of these people, 120 of them, are filled with the Holy Spirit and they run down into the street and, and the Holy Spirit is moving and, and there is this powerful manifestation of God's presence and everybody thought they were crazy. So they were all amazed. They were perplexed. They said, whatever could this mean? Other folks just mocked them and said, these folks have had way too much to drink and that's really the problem going on here. So Peter quiets the crowd. And he says, I want all of Jerusalem to know this. I want you to heed my words. And Peter begins to preach. These are not drunk as you suppose. These guys have not had too much to drink. But this is what Joel prophesied about in the last days. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he begins to unpack what God had said would happen in the last days. And so as Peter finishes that sermon, there is a great response to that sermon. 
He preaches hard. He preaches powerfully. And there is this great response. As Peter says, go ahead and flip the next screen. Peter then, one more screen. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when Peter is done preaching on the day of Pentecost, this group that started out as 120, 2,880 more came to Christ. 3,000 people in all were saved that day when Peter, Peter preached that sermon. That has never happened to me yet, just so you know. I've never preached and 3,000 people are saved, but every preacher would want that to happen. But it did to Peter. There's this great response and boom, watch this, the church is birthed. They have a mission to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden, the church emerges in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The church in Jerusalem continued to grow. Remember that Acts 3 healing when Peter and John go down to the temple and there's a lame man begging for alms. He wants their money and they say, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the man starts walking and leaping and praising God. Miracles occur. The gospel is preached. And the Jewish council gets a little bit nervous. They have the apostles beaten and thrown into prison and they are told never again to speak about Jesus. But instead of backing away from preaching the gospel, they pray, God, just give us more boldness so we can preach with greater authority. And in fact, they do so. And by the time we get to the end of Acts chapter 5, 3,000 has turned into 5,000. The word and the disciples now are multiplying when we get to Acts chapter 6. And something happens in Acts 7 that will change the course of the church forever. Up to this point, the church, the gospel, the message of Christ has been contained in Jerusalem. One of the deacons that was chosen in Acts chapter 6 was not just a deacon, but he was a preacher of the gospel. And he preaches to the Jews and their hearts are convicted because he tells the Jews, you are the ones that crucified the Messiah. And they are angry with this deacon by the name of Stephen. And when they heard these things, they were cut to heart and they gnashed him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed up into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at Stephen with one accord and they started throwing stones at him and ran him out of the city. And the witnesses laid their clothes down at the feet of a man by the name of Saul. A Saul from Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul and write more than half of the New Testament. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And when he said this, Stephen passed away. He fell asleep. All of a sudden, there's a page turned. There's going to be persecution for the church. It ramps up. This church that had been contained in Jerusalem now realizes that they're going to have to leave. And so the church leaves Jerusalem. 
In Acts chapter 1, it says that Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Look where they were scattered. Through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Where did Jesus say, you're going to be witnesses to me? In all of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. And now persecution drives them out of Jerusalem And they go into the region of Judea and Samaria. The gospel made its way throughout all of Judea and Samaria. In Acts 9.31, the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and they were edified. And it spread even further in Acts 11. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews. But then the Holy Spirit caused a little bit of discomfort. Persecution was one thing, but now they have a prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit starts to stir them up a little bit. The church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas Simeon was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and they fasted and the Holy Spirit spoke. And he said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. After fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. And there they arrived in Salimus. And they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jew. And they also had John as their assistants. So this man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who was there when Stephen was stoned and was consenting to his death, In between these chapters, you know, he has that road to Damascus experience. The light strikes him down. His life has changed. He becomes a believer and ultimately a great preacher of the gospel. But now the church spreads because of this discomfort. I want you to notice that discomfort came in two different ways, two different forms. Certainly it was uncomfortable to know that If you preach the gospel, you might get persecuted. Certainly it was uncomfortable to have to go undercover and meet in house churches. And by the way, um, just as a little side note, um, those who study the church today believe there are more born-again, spirit-filled Christians in China where the gospel is against the law than any other place in the world, meeting not in Churches, but in house churches, undercover. Persecution has a way of making you decide, am I really on this side or not? You're not going to give your life for something that you're not sold out to. And they are so sold out and they share their faith with others. But discomfort came in two forms. One, it came in the form of persecution. But secondly, it came in the form of the Holy Spirit nudging them. And say, this is not a good thing that you're doing, sitting here and holding on to this and not sharing the good news. You remember the story of the four lepers who had all of the spoils and they thought, man, this is pretty cool. And finally, one of them said, you know what? This isn't a good thing. There are people starving to death and we are stuffing our faces full of food and all of these people are starving to death. We need to tell them that's what the Holy Spirit did to the church. The Holy Spirit said, it's time that you share what you have experienced. Discomfort came in two forms. I'm going to meddle here just a little bit and also confess a little bit at the same time. 
The church in America today is under a certain level of persecution. I really believe that. Nobody's throwing stones at us. Nobody yet is getting thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. But everyone knows that our freedoms are being shrunk, that we're becoming a minority, that it's becoming more and more difficult. You preach the gospel and you call a sin a sin and you can be charged in many cases with a hate crime. And we're finding ourselves squeezed more and more. And quite honestly, I don't want to be the bringer of bad news. That probably is not going to change anytime soon unless there is revival in this country. But can I just say to you that the New Testament church did not spend their time fighting the persecution. But instead they used that energy to spread the gospel instead. They didn't get together and have strategy meetings about how they could overturn Rome or get things turned around or fight the persecuting powers. But instead, they said, let's use this energy that we have to spread the gospel to those who are hurting. I would ask you the question, the same question I asked myself. Are we spending more time fighting the persecution than spreading the truth? Do we spend more time resisting and trying to get things the way they were? Instead of sharing the gospel with people who desperately need Jesus. I hope that there's a level of discomfort even with those words this morning. It's not every Sunday that I come to the pulpit saying I want us to be uncomfortable. But I would like for us to be uncomfortable and grapple with this question. Are we spending more time trying to resist the persecution than we are using that energy to spread the gospel? We have a mission without borders. And that unease needs to get in our spirit and stir us to action that is gospel-oriented. Let me uh, tell you two stories that have to do with myself, and they all have happened in the last 72 hours. And um, when you come and you confess your sin to me, I always give you grace. So you better give me grace this morning when I do this, all right? Um. A couple of things happened. First of all, and this is just a pet peeve of mine, and it, it probably doesn't matter in the larger scope of things, but I really believe in the majesty and the holiness and the awesomeness of God. And I am bothered when church people approach the holiness and majesty and awesomeness of God in a trite, kind of cheesy manner. It's become very common, at least among many Preachers that, that I see, I guess, on Facebook and social media. And maybe you don't see it, and if not, God bless you, glad you don't. And if you've said this thing, you can repent later and get this fixed in your life too. But one of the things, one of the things that really annoys me is when God does something great and they're sharing a testimony, at the end of it, there's this little yay God with four exclamation points. As if God is... The Indianapolis Colts that just scored a touchdown. Yay, God! Yay, God! You did well. Or the Indiana Pacers. And when God starts getting treated like like he's trite and unholy and and just our best friend in a sports team, I don't know if it annoys you, but it annoys the fire out of me, all right? I just don't think that's the way we ought to be talking about God. He doesn't need our applause. He needs our worship. He doesn't need our saying, you did a good thing, God. We're really proud of you. He is the holy, majestic creator of the universe. So it bothered me, and I saw it happen. It happens all the time. And I, this was Thursday night or Friday night. 
I decided I had had enough and I was going to fix the American church by just firing off one tweet. I was going to send a tweet and the entire American church, it was going to go viral and I was going to fix them all and we were going to have revival here. Every preacher in the country was going to come here and repent forever saying, yay God. I was sure that was going to happen. But before I did that, I was actually checked. I felt like the Holy Spirit said, number one, who are you? How arrogant would that be? All you're going to do is just stir up a fight. All you're doing is just fighting something you you don't like instead of taking that energy and teaching people about the holiness and the majesty and the awesomeness of God so that those that you are entrusted to pastor won't treat God that way, but will treat him with the majesty that he so deserves. So we all give me grace for that confession, all right? But then it didn't end. You would think I would learn my lesson. But this morning, yes, before I preach this morning, as I'm rolling into the parking lot and I'm looking at, at, at my phone and I, I saw that someone tweeted, and this really aggravated me. Um, it's, it's somebody that is, it is a, I, they follow me and I follow them on Twitter. And they had retweeted um, a statement a student had made in a secular university um, celebrating the fact this was a person who was transgender. They were a male who self-identified as a female. And, um, and so they were insisting that everyone in their class call them she. And someone in that class refused to call the he she. And uh, are you confused yet? There, that's, that's our world. So they, they refused to call the he, she, and the professor kicked the person out of class because they refused to identify the he that wanted to be identified as a she, as a she instead identified them as a he and got kicked out of the class. And they were celebrating the fact this person was retweeting and celebrating the fact that finally college professors were standing up and speaking the truth and kicking people out because they would not go along with that agenda. So this time I had bigger ambitions. I wasn't just going to fix the American church. I was going to fix the whole stinking world with one tweet. <laughs> and it was going to be on a Sunday morning. I was going to fix it before I preached today. And I got ready to send something out. And again, I was checked. I knew what I was about to preach. Are we spending more time fighting the persecution and arguing about things that we won't change them over unless they encounter the Lord of glory? That's our responsibility. And I would say to us, the church, we have a mission that has no borders. And when we get that unease in us and that discomfort in us, Use that energy not to fight the persecution, not to fight the political agendas, but to tell people about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords so he can transform their lives. Say amen if you believe that. Gary Haugen is the president and CEO of International Justice Mission, a Christian organization dedicated to fighting sex trafficking. Said this, and it really stirred my heart. After we have poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, and after we provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, and after we've worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, why? Why have you given all of this to me? And the honest answer for me is so that you will be safe. And my kid looks up at me and says, really? 
That's it? You want me to be safe? Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens? Gary Haugen says, I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for larger glory. Are we willing to let the unease and the discomforts and possibly the suffering stir us out of our comfort zone? What if God calls you? What if God calls your child to a place where there is no safety, but the gospel, but where the gospel is trouncing down the borders of hell? Are we going to embrace a mission that has no borders? If so, it's going to cause some discomfort. Secondly, in order for the church to embrace the mission without borders, it requires a shift in our comfortable paradigm. Throughout the Old Testament, the nations were brought in. Read the Old Testament. The nations came in to the people of God. God's people in the Old Covenant did not have a call of mission to go, but they lived separate from the nations. Israel was to be distinct. They were to be holy. They were to be a light of attraction that brought people to them from the outside in. The Jews often blessed people that they were around. The promise of Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Joseph blessed Potiphar. And then later he blessed Pharaoh. When Israel left Egypt, many went with them. It was a mixed multitude. When Moses spoke to Pharaoh... He said, this is indeed the purpose of God, that that Pharaoh was raised up so that God could show his power in him and that his name could be declared in all the earth. Melchizedek, Balaam, and Jethro, Rahab, Ruth, all were Gentiles that joined the people of God. They came from the outside in. The prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, verses 3 for 5, Three through five speak of nations that will run to Israel. Micah prophesies the same in Micah 4 and verse 2. But in the new covenant, it would all change. In the new covenant, it would not be the, the Gentiles coming to Israel. But in the New Testament, there was a call to the people of God to go out. Remember the parable of the wedding feast? Jesus tells the story about this wedding feast that they have. And this king has it for his son. And they send all the invitations out and nobody comes. And he gets angry. They send another batch of invitations out and still nobody comes. And then the king becomes so angry. He says, I want you to go out. And I want you to go into the highways and the byways. And I want you to compel them to come in. Jesus said, this is the kingdom. We go out now and we bring them in. We don't expect them to come to us. My, how the church needs to learn that lesson. We sit on Sunday morning and expect sinners to come to us when the New Testament calls us to go to them. Say amen if you believe that. Say amen if you don't believe it because nobody believed it apparently. Say amen if you believe that. We're called to go out. 
The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore into all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And Paul taught in Romans chapter 10. How can they call on somebody they've not believed? And how can they believe in someone of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless there be a preacher? And how can they preach unless someone sins? The church today must change its paradigm. We can't wait on them to come to us. We must go. It's why we support missionaries. It's why we ask you to pledge and commit to giving. It's why we take offerings. Because we are called to take a gospel without borders. A message that has no borders to the ends of the earth. According to the Gospel Project, over 40% of the world's people, groups, and population are unreached. They have not heard about Jesus. We must change our paradigm and go. But that's risky, Pastor. That, 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 could, that could cause difficulty. That could cause persecution. Southern Baptist missionary Karen Watson, who left on March 7, 2003 to go to Iraq, was killed just a little more than a year later, March 15th of 2004, left behind a letter to her pastors and inside that letter, this poem called The Missionary Heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. And expect more than some think is possible. That's what we have to do. If we are going to embrace a mission without borders, we've got to change our paradigm. It's not, well, if they want us, they'll come. It's we go to them and carry the message of Jesus to a world that's hurting. And finally, number three, and I'll be done, in order for the church to embrace its mission without borders, we must pursue God's vision and not ours. You see, Christ came to establish an international family, and he calls us to be witnesses to all people, not just our kind of people. If we're honest, that's hard for us. If we're honest, it's hard for us. It was hard for the New Testament church, too. I mean, these guys had been, they had been absolutely indoctrinated in the purity of Judaism, the purity of the Jewish faith. And so when the day of Pentecost happened and all the Jews were filled with the Holy Spirit and things were wonderful, that was, that was it. And then one day, uh, Acts 10, Peter, who, I mean, he was a good Jew. He was carrying the gospel to the Jews. He was excited about it. Peter has a vision. And in this vision, he is told to eat food that his Jewish lips had been taught all of his life not to eat. I can't, can't touch it. It's unclean. God said, don't call unclean what I've made clean. That vision was all about Peter was supposed to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile dude. And in his whole household, he was supposed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter said, no, no, Lord, I can't do that. I'm a good Jew. God said, you need to do it. And so he goes in the house of Cornelius. And he awakened to the fact very quickly that they're just like him. They've just been raised a little bit different. He starts preaching to them. And while he preaches to these Gentiles, while he's still preaching, they believe. 
And the Holy Spirit falls. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, just like they were on the day of Pentecost. It rocked his world. Changed him completely. The Gentiles received what he had received. But it wasn't that you would think that Peter would have learned this lesson. But even after that, we read Galatians 2. And Paul says, when Peter had come to Antioch, I had to withstand him face to face because he was to be blamed for certain men came from James. He was one of the big shots, like the general superintendent from from Jerusalem. One of the big shots, James, came and, and he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and he separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with this hypocrisy. If you didn't understand, let me tell you real quickly what Peter's what happened. Paul is saying this thing was so ingrained in them that God was after people like them that even though they had this revelation in the house of Cornelius, they were still a little a little odd about it because when the big shot Jews showed up, they moved from the picnic table with the Gentiles and sat with the Jews and acted like they didn't even know who the Gentiles were. And Paul said, it made me so angry. I got, can you imagine that fight? Paul and Peter face to face. And Paul said, you need to quit being a hypocrite. And Paul not only calls out Peter, he calls out Barnabas. He also played the hypocrisy. We're just kind of taught that it's, we want to be comfortable. Gospels for people like us. But ultimately, God's vision is much different. This is God's vision. Revelation 7. A great multitude that nobody can number of all nations, tribe, people, and tongues. This is God's vision. Revelation 5. People around the throne. People who have been redeemed, worshiping. They've been redeemed by God and his blood out of every tribe and out of every tongue and out of every people and every nation. This is difficult for us because we instinctively think the gospel is for people like us. Listen to me. I don't want to offend anyone. I just want to speak the truth. You can and should be patriotic and faithful to the gospel at the same time. Say man, if you believe that. You can be patriotic and faithful to the gospel at the same time, but you cannot be nationalistic as some have seen in extreme forms today and be faithful to the gospel. It's not just about us. You cannot be racist and be faithful to the gospel. You cannot exclude or look down on any type of person without contradicting the gospel and in fact, discrediting it altogether. Our mission is to the ends of the earth. It is a mission that has no borders. So Jesus, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said it's not just for Israel. Not at all. You're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be witnesses to Israel. But also to Samaria 
And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And all of Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. A group of missionaries in the 19th century in what is now Suriname and South America. They wanted to carry the gospel to, um, to an island of people who had never, never heard the gospel. The problem was the people on the island were slaves to a very wicked, tyrannical government that would not allow a missionary to speak to a slave. They were afraid of the power of the gospel. They were afraid that it would change the slaves and they might resist. And so the government refused missionaries on this island to speak to a slave. So these missionaries sold themselves into slavery and worked as slaves in the hot, horrific conditions so that they would have an opportunity to speak to another slave and tell him about Jesus. And because of their sacrifice, that island was converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ mission without borders. Don't put a box around it. Don't say it's us foreign no more. I love these words of Paul. I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated. For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Jesus. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We should say, I have an obligation. If you if you got saved and you just enjoy the comfort of church now with your friends, that's not what Paul's talking about here. We ought to say, I'm obligated. I'm obligated. I received it. It doesn't matter if they look like me, think like me. It doesn't matter where they've been, what they've done. It doesn't matter what the color of their skin is or what their religion has been. I'm obligated to tell them about Jesus who changed my life. And I hope there's a sense of discomfort and unease when we hear that. But a willingness to embrace what God has called us to. Would you stand with me, please? Bow your heads for just a moment. First of all, let me ask you this question. Is there anyone here who's never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life? You say, Pastor Kevin, I'm not serving him. I'm not ready to meet him. My heart is not right with him. But I want to know Jesus. I want want to receive him into my life. Anyone in this room who would say, pray for me. I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Anyone, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? your hand and say um, I don't mind feeling uncomfortable I want God to stir me out of my comfort zone and shake me from my paradigm I want to do whatever I can whether it means pray more, give more go I, I, I sense an obligation to the gospel save me. And I want to, res- I want to respond just by an upraised hand saying, 
whatever God calls me to do, whether it's pray more, give more, go, I want to do that. How many would raise your hand with me and say, I sense that obligation and I want to respond to that. I want us to sing this chorus that Pastor Clayton is leading us in. And if you um, raised your hand and said you need to um, accept Christ as your Savior, or if you didn't but should have, I'm going to invite you if you would. You don't have to. We'd love to have someone pray with you. Kyle will come and pray with you. Or if there's more than one, we'll have others pray. But if, if you raised your hand and said, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life, or if you just you didn't raise your hand but you say, I need to do that, I would invite you to come. Maybe you just want to come and, and pray. If you want to come and kneel down, you can do that as well. As we sing that chorus, let's, if we raised our hand and said, we, we sense some discomfort, but we want to respond. Can we make this our prayer? God, take my life, take my heart, form it, my will, conform it to yours. Let's sing this together.